else, but it sounded like there was a little bit of four-part harmony going on and nothing but the blood. I could be wrong, but it did appear that way to me. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in the, uh, the announcements and prayer requests this morning, uh, Sandy had mentioned that uh, there's a nephew of a gentleman at Shekinah. Um, what, his name was Miller. Aaron, Aaron Miller, his uh, eight-year-old nephew had a stroke here in the last day or so, so if you would please be in prayer for that family as they endure and go through that. But I want to go ahead and invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We're in Luke chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. If, you, if there's one thing about the Bible, as you study it more and more, you come to find out that it is full of paradox, something that appears at first glance to be a contradiction, but when you explore it a little further, it really is not. Statements that don't really appear possibly true, but they really are. For example, there is God that is three in one. Christ is both fully God and fully man. Believers have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. Power and strength is found in and through our weakness. A believer's sinful life is exchanged for Christ's sinless perfection. And yet the penalty and the wrath that we rightly deserved from God was laid squarely upon him at the cross. There are these and a great many more truths in the Bible that come to us by way of paradox. And Jesus himself occasionally used paradoxical statements to to teach us some important spiritual lessons. In Luke 6.38, he said, Give, and it will be given to you. In Luke 9.24, he said, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. In Matthew 19.30, he said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then in Matthew 20.26 20, and 27, he said, But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave." And our text this morning also contains a paradoxical statement, as we'll see here in a moment. But it might seem to many of us that we could just kind of read over these types of things and sort of glide on over them because sometimes they're, they're just a little difficult to understand. But these paradoxes are here really to help us to grow wiser and, and godlier, to live more and more like Jesus Christ. And so it's critical for us to not only understand what they mean, but then to apply them diligently in our lives. But Jesus also taught by way of parables. Parables are earthly stories that teach a spiritual reality. They have a picture part and a reality part. And as we're going to see as we progress through Luke, we're going to see Jesus increasing in his frequency by teaching in the way of parables. And so we've got kind of a, an especially interesting text before us this morning because Jesus uses a paradoxical statement to help emphasize and explain 
the parable. But although its meaning is, is pretty straightforward and it's pretty easy to understand, the application and the obedience to this, this is where the rubber is going to meet the road. This is where I think that every single one of us in this room, myself included, if we examine our hearts and be completely honest with ourselves, we would say we have much work to do in this area. And so as we begin to look at this passage this morning, let's pray that we would not only be just hearers of the word, let's pray that we would be doers of the word. Let's pray that the word of God changes us in this area and causes us to be more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Amen? So I want us to read this text together this morning so that we have it upon our minds and our hearts. If you're there with me in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 14, we're starting in verse 7. God's inspired and inerrant word says this, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word and the truths that are contained within them. Lord, I just pray that you would speak through a mere man, a sinful man this morning, that we would hear this word this morning and not take it and let it just resonate within our minds, but that we would take it and apply it to our hearts. Help all of us here this morning to do that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, when we think about the parables in the Bible, we most often associate Jesus with using them. And that's rightly so, because nearly one-third of all of the teachings of Christ comes in the form of a parable. The closer and the closer that we get to Jerusalem, it seems that he's going to use parables more and more. Even in Matthew 13, 34... It says that all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. But the use of parables in the Bible actually have their roots in the Old Testament. In fact, the Hebrew word for parable is also the same word where proverb or riddle comes from and has its basic meaning. It's an idea of comparison. A parable simply means to bring alongside. So, for example, in Proverbs 18, 11, it says that a, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. And so you readily get the picture here 
that the wealth of a man is not really going to offer him any protection like he thinks, but his trust should be in that of the Lord. Or Proverbs 19.12, it says that the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is the dew on the grass. Now, if you've ever been to the zoo and you've heard that lion's roar even before you get up close to the cage, it really makes you kind of stop and pray and hope that he is, in fact, in the cage. It's a little terrifying. But there's this parabolic comparison there that we can readily understand. But we also see uh, parables in, used in prophetic works, like in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7, where God likens the house of Israel and the men of Judah to the planting of a choice vineyard that he expected to produce some good fruit. And he, that it ends up, it only starts to produce worthless fruit. And so God asks the question, he goes, what am I supposed to do with my vineyard? In a sense, he's asking Israel, what would you do with your vineyard? And what, what more could I do when it again and again and again, it does not bear any fruit? Even the prophet Nathan, when he came to confront King David after committing adultery with Bathsheba, he used a parable to convict David of his sin in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 10. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one richer and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then in verse 5 it said, David's anger burned greatly against this man, and he said, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution fourfold. It's that point right there where Nathan then says to David, you are the man. And so the idea or the use of a parable is not just limited to the teachings of Jesus Christ, but certainly no one used them as consistently or creatively or even effectively as Jesus Christ did. And we see that in a prime example in our text today. Now, Jesus' uses of the parable are generally theocentric. And that's just a meaning that they they focus on God. They focus on his kingdom and the expectations of the citizens of that kingdom. And so therefore, there's often this invitation to change our behavior in order to follow Jesus Christ into the path of discipleship. There should be some spiritual fruit in our lives that comes as a result of listening and obeying what the parable is teaching. And that's true of our text today because it deals with a subject that is near and dear to every one of our own hearts. So I want us to look at this parable a little bit more closely. We're going to look at this under three different headings. Verse 7 contains the issue of prideful placement. Verse 8 through 10 contains the parable of the party. And verse 11 contains the paradox of pride. Don't ask me how those words came to me. They just did, and I decided to use them. 
So first of all, we have the issue of the prideful placement in verse 7 where it says, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Now, we know from the previous account here that Jesus had been invited into the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees for lunch, and they, they tried to set him up. They brought in, and they wanted to, to, him to break the law by bringing in this man who had been suffering from dropsy, and we said that's edema, that's swelling of the tissue. It's very, very painful to go through, and it typically is an indication that your major organs are failing. And the offense that they were looking for, for Jesus to do here, was to work on the Sabbath day. And they had this very narrow, and honestly, this very callous view of what constituted work on the Sabbath, especially for someone who might be suffering. So, for example, think about this. If you are walking along and a wall fell down on top of you, the pharisaical law said that those who would come to your aid were only allowed to remove enough rubble off of you to check to see if you were alive. Hey, Chuck, you good down there, right? Just enough to see if you were okay. And if they thought that you were able and to survive and make it to the next day when it wasn't the Sabbath, they would let you lay under the rubble. That is how callous they were with doing work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus heals this man with dropsy, and he sends him on his way, and then he confronts the Pharisees about their hypocrisy, and he says to them, which one of you, having a son or a donkey that falls into a well, is not going to go and immediately pull it out? And not a single person in the room could answer. They all remained silent. And that's because they all knew the answer in their hearts. They would all immediately save their son or even their donkey if it came right down to it. And Jesus could see right through them. And he really exposed them and their religious hypocrisy because they didn't love God and they didn't love their neighbors. It was more of a do as I say, don't do as I do. And Jesus repeatedly showed them the hypocrisy of their man-made rules in trying to keep the Sabbath. But instead of leaving them there in their awkward state of silence and saying, hey, how about those Buckeyes or anything, and letting them relish in the fact a bit about how they were ultimately hypocrites, when it comes to keeping the Sabbath, he breaks the silence and he tells them a parable because he noticed something about them when they entered the room. It says that they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Now, what this is called is called a triclinium, a triclinium. And if you can picture in your mind a set of three couches uh, arranged in the shape of a U and, and with a table of food right in the middle of all three of them. And the couches aren't like those big fluffy couches as you may be picturing in your mind right now, but they were more like a knee-high uh, coffee table that was made of wood, and it was big enough for three people to lay out on in their bellies with their elbows up in front of them. And then it was covered with a pad, or it might have some pillows where they could prop themselves up and have their arms rest on it. You would never have to tell your kid to sit up again. You'd tell them, lay down, right? But if you can imagine... At the bottom of that U, that is where the place of honor was. 
the most important guest would sit there so that he could have a good view of everyone that was sitting around him in the U, and it usually was the host of the lunch. It was called the triclinium. It's sort of how we leave in our rectangle tables the, the head of the table is typically for the honored or distinguished guests, right? But the bottom of the U, that's where it was at. And then to the left of that spot would be the person who was the second most distinguished guest. And then on to the right of that person would have been the third most distinguished guest, and so on and so on as you go around the U. And so what these guys were apparently doing as they were shuffling their way into this lunching is they were ever so subtly kind of jockeying for a higher and higher position to the top of the U. They were using their seating arrangements and their to posture and show everybody just how important they really were in trying to get as close as they could to that top of the U. And we've seen Jesus address this with some Pharisees before in Luke eleven forty three, and he said, Woe, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And so this group that he's eating lunch with is just the same. Jesus knew what their intentions were when they came into the room for a higher position and they made a calculated move to get up to the higher position of the table. Because their desire was public recognition and they worked hard to get it. Because it was a kind of an honor and shame kind of world for them. But their greatest desire was not to be esteemed by God in their private devotion, but it was to be esteemed by men in their public reputation. And it was nothing less than pride and selfish ambition. As R. Kent Hughes put it, he said, Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. And that's exactly what we have going on here with these Pharisees. And we see this type of behavior, this pride and this selfish ambition all the time, don't we? And sometimes we're even guilty of it ourselves, both in a positive aspect and a negative aspect. We rejoice in our hearts when we do get what we want, and we look down upon those who didn't get it. And then when we don't get what we want, we, in, in the honor and the respect that we think we deserve, we grumble and we murmur in our hearts. We see it when siblings fight and jockey for that front seat in the car when it's open, right? And the victor's got this great big smile and grin on his face, and he's happy that he got the front seat while the other one's in the back seat with their arms crossed and a big old frown on their face, right? We see it when siblings try to outdo one another in serving and giving to their parents and trying to gain more and more of the favor than the other. And then the one starts making accusations and saying, you're mom and dad's favorite. We see it in the workplace when there's that one guy who just goes over the top and he tries to smooth talk the boss all the time. He volunteers for any and every extra duty there is possible, no matter how much it's going to overload him, just to try to outdo all the other workers and hopefully get a promotion. We see it when people rush in to get on the airplane first, right? In order to try to grab a better seat or to have some overhead space for their carry-on luggage. We even see it within the church. 
When people try to maneuver for better positions and they start to stroke the denominational heads and, and the ego on social media and trying to get a, a, maybe a comfy executive position or somehow move up the ladder in religion or something like that and show everyone how esteemed they are. And sometimes, conversely, in the local church, we see it when people don't get the recognition that they think they deserve. And they feel there's nothing greater for them to do and there's no title for them to have. And a lot of times then, they simply just leave. And we're guilty of this same sin ourselves when we actually do get the advantage or the thing that we wanted. And we secretly rejoice in our hearts about the downfall of our rival. It is nothing more than sinful pride. Pride has been called the chief of sins and is foundational to every other sin. It is the sin that apparently Satan had committed that caused his fall before the creation of man. In Isaiah 14, it says, in trying to exalt himself and making himself equal with God. And it's the warning that's given to pastors and elders in 1 Timothy 3.6 so that a new convert shouldn't be placed in that position lest he become conceited or excessively proud of himself and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. It's the proud man with haughty eyes, it says, that leads the way in the seven abominations of the Lord in Proverbs 6.17. And I want you to listen very closely to this in Proverbs 16.5. If you don't hear anything out of this sermon, I want you to pay attention to this and I want you to listen to it carefully and I want you to listen to it reverently. I want you to get a Godward view of the sin of pride. Proverbs 16.5, it says that everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. You just can't get any stronger language than that, ladies and gentlemen. Pride is serious business, and God will have none of it. The proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must make war on pride. We must not let it rain in the least bit in our hearts. We must fight against everything that is pounded into our brains from Monday through Saturday that the world tells us that we need to affirm in ourselves in terms of selfish ambition and pride. Because pride is a thief. It will rob you of your joy and is contrary with every fruit of the Spirit. In terms of love, pride says I'm to love myself more than anyone else and I'm the only one worthy of affection. For joy, pride says my happiness is more important than your happiness and my happiness lies in seeing myself exalted over you. For peace, pride causes us to lash out at one another and get angry at those who stand in our way and it always hesitates and then ignores asking for forgiveness. For patience, pride resists any and every inconvenience. Pride says that my time is more valuable than your time. For kindness, 
Pride says it causes us to lose sight of the legitimate needs of others and says, I'm in my state of life because of the hard work and my own doing, and that in turn leads to a lack of sympathy or indifference. For goodness, pride says, you are not worth my benevolence, and it always leads to a lack of compassion and mercy. For faithfulness, Pride lies to us and it says, you know what? Self-reliance is the only way that I'm going to make it through life and it leads to prayerlessness and a lack of dependence upon God. For gentleness, pride justifies our harsh words and our unrestrained dealings with others and, uh, and other people, even if it means that we were wrong and it leads to harshness. For self-control, pride causes us to rationalize our bad behavior and our attitudes and overlooks a hundred other sins in order to protect and advance ourselves. And a word, pride destroys. In fact, Proverbs 16, 18 attests to that as much, and it says that pride goes before destruction. But Jesus says we should have nothing of that. That should not ever be the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. And so to illustrate his point, he tells them a parable. In verses 8 through 10, he says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. So here Jesus picks a major event in any town where this wedding celebration might last for days and days or or maybe even up to a week. And he's basically telling them, don't go in and presume a place of honor. Or in other words, what Jesus is saying is here, he's saying, don't come walking into the door thinking you're hot stuff and stroll to the front. Because if you do, instead of getting the feeling of pride that you so desire, what you may be taking is the walk of shame. Now, it's very well likely that Jesus had in mind Proverbs 25, 6, and 7 when he spoke these words because the Pharisees would have been somewhat familiar with the Old Testament where it says, Do not claim honor in the presence of a king, and do not stand in the place of great men, for it is better that it be said of you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of a prince. Now, this may seem like some very... Uh, practical earthly application here, and it probably is, right? It's probably good practical advice that you don't go to a wedding and you go and sit yourself down on the stage with the bride and the groom when you're invited and then get later told to get down. You're not supposed to sit there. You're over there by the door to the kitchen, right? But this is, a, this is, is not just a lesson for these guys on etiquette, This is not a lesson on how to be a better hypocrite 101. But there is an eternal principle, spiritual principle here, that Jesus is trying to teach on the kingdom of God. And the principle is this. In order to get to the kingdom of heaven, it's not going to be related to how we pridefully push our way to the top, 
but it will be solely dependent upon the graciousness of the Lord of hosts if we come before him humbly. And whatever seat that we are given in heaven will only be because of the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 tells us. People who think they are good enough and do good enough deeds and all that to get into heaven on their own merits and are pridefully depending upon themselves for salvation will in the end be humbled. Lord, Lord, didn't we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's why Jesus said in the very first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount on, uh, in Matthew 5.3, it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those that realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Those that know the depth of their sinfulness within their own hearts. Those that know of their own lostness and know that they are dependent solely on God's graciousness and salvation will see the kingdom of God. It's what the hymn writer Augustus Toplady tried to capture when he wrote the words to Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And then lastly, we see the paradox of pride in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be Exalted. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that in order to go up to glory, we must first go down to humility. We must decrease so that he might increase. In a word, we must put on ourselves the opposite of pride, and that is a cloak of humility. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 through 6 says this, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here, first of all, we see that this humility is one that we should have between our fellow man, right? And then in verse 6 it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So then there's that humility with which we should have before God. J.C. Ryle said that humility is the queen of all graces. And Charles Spurgeon said that humility still remains the rarest of jewels. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that the pathway to exaltation is through humility. The road to heaven is paved with stones of humility. I want to read a quote from Jonathan Edwards on humility because I felt like he said it far better than I could. But he said this, quote, A truly humble man is sensible of the small extent of his own knowledge and the great extent of his ignorance, and of the small extent of his understanding as compared to the understanding of God. He is sensible to his weakness, his little strength is, and how little he is able to do. He is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, and of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld 
and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead him and to guide him, and his might to be enable him to do what he ought to do for him. He is sensible of his subjection to God, and that God's greatness does properly consist in his authority, whereby he is the sovereign Lord and the King of all. He is willing to be subject to that authority as feeling that it becomes him to submit to the divine will will and yield in all things to God's authority. Let all be exhorted earnestly to seek much of a humble spirit and to endeavor to humble in all or be humble in all their behavior towards God. Seek for a deep and abiding sense of your comparative lowliness before God and men. Know God. Confess your nothingness and ill desert before him. Distrust yourself. Rely only on God. Renounce all glory except to Him. Yield yourself heartily to His will and to His service. And avoid an aspiring, ambitious, ostentatious, assuming, arrogant, scornful, stubborn, willful, leveling, self-justifying behavior. And strive for more and more of the humble spirit that Christ manifested while he himself was on earth. Beloved, we must make war on pride in every aspect of our lives. We must cry out to God and ask Him for the gift of humility. And I want to tell you, one of the most dangerous places to have pride is in this pulpit. I look out at all your faces and don't think I'm tempted to look and say it's all because of me. Don't think that when I hear feedback from a sermon that I'm not tempted to say, you did a good job, Matt, nice job. Pride is everywhere. Pride is a weed that is in the church and we must fight against it. We must cry out to God to give us the gift, the precious gift of humility. Because the only way to the kingdom of God is by humbleness and being contrite and being meek. But what a joy it will be for you as a believer in Jesus Christ when you enter into the joy of your Master and He looks down upon you with great affection and He says to you, Friend, Please, come up here and move higher. Let us pray for the gift of humility. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it shapes us and molds us into the conformity of Christ. God, let it work deep in our hearts digging up rocky soil and breaking it free so that we may have tender hearts before you. God, help us never to let pride get a foothold, but help us to put on a cloak of humility. Lord, help us in this endeavor. It's only by your power and strength that we can do this. Let us be watchful of our hearts for pride. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.